This is Dom Bettinelli, the CEO of SQPN, with a brief but very important message. For more than a decade, SQPN has produced the Catholic faith and pop culture podcasts that you love. We're a nonprofit organization, so it's only your generosity that lets us carry out our mission. We haven't run a fundraiser in two years, and that's why we need to ask for your help right now. Please make a pledge of whatever amount you can afford to help us continue providing your favorite podcasts, as well as exciting new ones we have planned. To make your pledge and find out about the free thank you gifts we'd like to send you, visit sqpn.com slash give. That's sqpn.com slash give. Thank you for your generosity. May we hear from you today? You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode number 27. Captain DeBridge. Spock here. Make it so. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Don Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. Today we're discussing Star Trek Discovery's Vulcan Hello. That's right, the first episode of the newest series Star Trek, uh, of Star Trek, Star Trek Discovery. Joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Hey, Dom, I just want to wish you and Father Corey a very warm Vulcan hello. <laughs> <laughs> uh, rather not, thanks. Actually, uh, aren't Vulcan hellos kind of cold? <laughs> well. <laughs> and, and Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Right. Yeah. Uh, Vulcan hellos are best served cold. Yes. <laughs> now we're really mixing it up. Uh, I want to first start by, uh, as we as we often do, reminding, reminding the listeners to, if you can, go uh, like the Secrets of Star Trek episodes on Facebook, on the SQPN Facebook page, to uh, follow SQPN on Twitter, and to uh, like and retweet our uh, tweets about this show. Uh, leave us comments, subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in your favorite podcast app, uh, and on YouTube. And when you subscribe on YouTube, hit the bell to get notifications, uh, to write us a review on one of the uh, iPod, uh, podcast directories, and uh, share the podcast with your tricky friends to help us grow our community of listeners, to reach more folks with, with what we're doing here. And to, because the more people we reach, the more it benefits you as uh, the show grows and gets gets better. Uh, Jimmy, before we get into the uh, talking about uh, the Vulcan Hello, can you give us mm -hmm. a few words about uh, SQPN's giving campaign? Yeah. So right now, SQPN uh, or StarQuest is uh, running a giving campaign. We haven't run one in two years and our funds are low. And so we need to get them replenished if we're going to keep producing podcasts like this one. Uh, some months ago, the board made a decision that uh, we wanted to ramp up our podcasting efforts. We'd kind of been limping along with just one podcast. But our mission is to bring people closer to God. That's in our name. That's why we're called StarQuest. It's a reference to the Bethlehem star that led people to Jesus. And we want to do that by exploring faith and pop culture, uh, looking at pop culture things like Doctor Who or Star Trek. Um, from a Catholic perspective. Uh, and so that's our mission. And we wanted to embrace that mission 
more fully and produce a larger line of programs. That's one of the reasons now that we're doing Secrets of Star Trek, as well as other shows, including uh, Let's Talk and Jimmy Akin's Mysterious Universe. If you like those shows and want to keep hearing them, we need to hear from you because we have additional labor costs and production costs and technical costs. And the way you can help us is by going to uh, sqpn.com. That's for sqpn for uh, StarQuest Podcast Network.com slash give, G I V E. So sqpn.com slash give. Click on the Patreon link there, become one of our regular monthly Patreon supporters. We have some thank you gifts that we'd really like to send you um, in, uh, in token of acknowledging your generosity. And we have them themed. Based on uh, three of your favorite shows, one of them is Secret to Doctor Who, another is Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. But we also, for people who are particular fans of Star Trek, have some Star Trek themed gifts. One of them is a book that uh, is very interesting. It's an in universe book called The Autobiography of James T. Kirk, and it offers a perspective on the famous Kirk stories from Kirk's own uh, point of view, including things like Star Trek V and his uh, interesting take on the search for God. In addition, we have, uh, depending on how the level you're able to support us at, we have a couple of additional Star Trek gifts. One of them is volume one of the 50-year mission, which is an oral history of Star Trek. Uh, the other is volume two of the 50-year history, the 50-year mission. Volume one covers the beginning of Star Trek up through kind of right up to the point where Next Gen was going to begin. Then volume two picks up with Next Gen and goes through the J.J. Abrams movies. It covers both the TV shows, the fandom, the convention, the novels, the comics, all that stuff. And the since it's an oral history, the editors of the book went and interviewed all of the producers and writers and actors and really wanted to give you a behind the scenes perspective on how Star Trek came together in all of its different iterations and incarnations. And it's a fascinating read. They uh, they cover uh, in, in not only the things that worked, but some of the things that didn't work so well, including some of the behind the scenes conflicts. And so it makes for very interesting reading. And we'd like to send both volumes of the 50-year mission to you, along with the autobiography of James T. Kirk, as uh, thank yous for your generosity. The way to help us out, once again, is go to sqpn.com slash give. That's sqpn.com slash give. And thank you very much for all of your assistance. Thank you, Jimmy. Uh, so, folks, today we're talking about the secrets of... Uh, Star Trek, uh, sorry, we're talking about Star Trek Discovery and the secrets of it, but particularly the first episode of the series, the pilot episode called The Vulcan Hello. Now, uh, just to, as a precursor, we've actually already had discussions about the first season of Star Trek Discovery. Uh, we mm -hmm. divided into two parts. We did that as part of our uh, Secrets of Movies and TV Shows podcast. Uh, but if you go to uh, sqpn.com slash trek uh, you can see uh, if you scroll down, you'll see those episodes there uh, listed and you can go back and listen to it. There are overviews of the first season in two parts because the first season came to us in two parts. And uh, so, so but we're going to talk specifically about the Vulcan. Hello this time and yeah. uh, and, and get an into episode that. review. In right. An yeah. episode review. Thank you. And uh, so 
the it would be hard to recap uh this adequately um, stuff happens stuff happens it takes place as we as you know um, uh, pr- presumably you know that it takes place before uh, ten years before the first episode of the original series, uh, on a, a ship called the Discovery. Well, eventually, on a well, ship. the Shinjo. Right. This the yeah, this episode takes place in the Shin the the Shinjo, and uh, it features a main character or the the protagonist that we follow is a not a commander of a starship, which is unique in Star Trek. Now, um, is uh, Michael Burnham, uh, a Starfleet officer. In this so far at this point. She's the executive officer of the Shenzhou under Captain uh, uh, Giorgio, uh, played by Michelle Yeoh. You may know her from uh, many movies. She's an accomplished super cop. Super, yeah, right. <laughs> well, and uh, what was I going to say? The um, Crouching Tiger. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Hidden Dragon, yes. Uh, she's a Chinese uh, actress. Uh, she was very good. And um, we eventually get to see her uh, get out her some of her martial arts uh, training in, in later on. She's a, a, an accomplished martial artist. Uh, so <clears throat> where to go with this? Um, we start off with the Klingons, uh, it, this Klingon leader speaking in Klingon, um, who basically tells us the Klingons have lost their way. They've forgotten the way of honor and glory. And so a beacon, uh, in which it turns out is a literal beacon must be lit to call them back to, uh, unity in the face of, uh, an exterior threat, which they see as the Federation. Um, Even though almost nobody from the Federation has seen a Klingon in over a hundred years, it seems to yeah. me you could pick a more immediate threat if well, you want to unite your people. And they went from we've never, we haven't seen the Klingons at all in a hundred years to well, they we see them once in a while, but we're in a Cold War. To oh yeah, they attacked one of our outposts that Michael Burnham is from, and right. it's just like. Yeah, they went from nothing to yeah they're well, actually actively having conflict within it, this last hundred years. Which, I, I by was. It, it's easy to see. Uh, it's easy to take it that way. Um, I I I tried to check, and I think the uh, the line is almost no one has seen a Klingon in almost a hundred years. Right. So they're they've got a little window in there to allow things like the attack that killed but, Michael's parents. But the, the interesting point, interesting thing about this is they said 100 years. Well, what was set 100 years before Discovery? Exactly 100 years before Discovery? Yeah. Enterprise. Right. Enterprise. So they're saying so after Enterprise, after the what we re, we see in Enter, the Star Trek Enterprise, the Klingons and the Federation basically separate for a while and now they're coming back together. Right. And, this, years and, later. and that doesn't make sense to me because you would you you wouldn't expect after the kind of engagements they had for a warrior race to say we're going to just stay behind our border for 100 years well, and they try to explain it I think by and it comes out a little bit in this episode and maybe again in the next one but they kind of explain that, that there, there's been so much infighting that the empire has fractured, and their, the interhouse divisions have turned all of their focus inward against one another instead of outward uh, in a unified fashion against the galaxy around them. So they've really. Mm-hmm. They, so I think that what they, they're kind of saying is the, the 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 they've been so focused on insular problems and and attacking one another uh, that. Takuvma, which we find is the name of this uh, sort of Klingon messiah figure, uh, is trying to unite the houses again out in an outward fashion to reclaim their honor and glory. Yeah. 
Uh, and he even he even uses the word crusade. And this, there's mm-hmm. actually kind of an interesting parallel here from history, because one of the um, one of the problems that happened in Europe during the Middle Ages was there was huge infighting among Christian princes and the popes were very concerned about this. They were trying to get the Pax Christi or peace of Christ over Europe you know, which was the center of Christian mm-hmm. civilization. They they didn't want all this infighting. And um, and one of the things that happened was they began to launch crusades against external threats, uh, you know, in the Middle East, because you had right. Muslim aggression happening there. And those crusades had the effect of dampening down some of the tensions in Europe, although never perfectly and never permanently, because they then re-erupted long after the Crusades in right. like the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries. And after, really every, ever, well, since. <laughs> ever since, ever yeah. since until after World War II. It wasn't right. until after World War II that we, things finally settled down in Europe. Yep. Um. Yes, that's actually a good parallel to 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 compare it to was the Crusades. Uh, we we have already discussed the Klingon redesign, the 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 their yeah, the, the changes. Um, Not lo- don't like. Yeah, like a lot of fans, uh, none of us really like the change. Uh, I mean, I'm okay with change, but this seemed like change for change's sake. Change changing something that was well established i mean it, w- it would be like changing vulcans for uh, to give them like weird head ridges and taking away pointy ears i mean it just it doesn't m- it, it didn't seem necessary uh on that so um I st- word on the word on the street is that they've taken that to heart and are remodifying the klingon design for season two that should be interesting but <laughs> i wonder how far that will go but it'll be interesting to see if we get some of the classic uh, Trek look back. And that was one part of the, I think, complaints was that we didn't feel like Star Trek in some ways uh, because everything seems so different, uh, including the uniforms, which is another thing that's I've heard is changing with season two is we're going to start to see some of the classic yellow and well, red. They, yeah. they've, they've shown in some of their, their preview. Um, Captain Pike preview wearing the yellow. Teasers, yeah. yeah, where he's he's wearing the, the, the original series style uniform. Right. And I, I wasn't opposed. I like the. I actually, I kind of like the uniform in Discovery. Yeah. I think they're good looking uniforms. Yeah, they're just I, not classic Trek looking uniforms. I just like the they're colors. Also, yeah, yeah. They're also kind of a bridge between the Enterprise Star Trek Enterprise prequel uniforms right. and the eventual uniforms. That's true. This is true. Uh, they they look much more like the Enterprise uniforms. So we start with we get our first glimpse of our, our protagonist, uh, Burnham and Giorgio on the. This planet, this crepusculus, I think it's called or something, which which is <laughs> okay. This word crepuscular has an actual meaning, you know. Yeah, it sounds a little too much like crepuscular. Yeah, <laughs> which Crep- uh, cre- cre- some, an organism is crepuscular <clears throat> if it comes out at twilight and dawn. <laughs> right, right. Which this seems doesn't seem like a twilight planet. This is a, a another desert planet because apparently the universe is full of barely habitable desert planets um <clears throat> they tell us a that radiation dried out a water table i'm not sure what the physics of that is um but okay yeah how does radiation <laughs> i mean heat radiation maybe well and yeah right it was uh, yeah it was like remnants from a from asteroid mining or something like that some radiation from it caused this right so some happen. some asteroid in space and and 
so for some reason, the Federation felt uh, necessary to um, that it didn't Crypto violate help these people. Right. Didn't invite the prime directive to go down and help these people. It, it, it would. Very thin premise here that we're working easiest, on. Easiest fix for a drought ever, though. Fire three shots from a blaster. <laughs> down yeah. to open up the well. Down a well. Why didn't know? they just walk to the well instead of like beaming down, you know, five miles away? I mean, like, why did they yeah. beam down to it instead of beaming down five miles away and walking to the desert to it? I just there was yeah. a whole lot of stuff that didn't make sense. There. Or punch through from orbit and just do the well from orbit. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although there, I, I suppose a- that'd be more visible to the locals. What what really struck me about this scene, and there are some things I like about it, like where it turns out Captain Giorgio has had them walk in the shape of a Starfleet symbol yes, to identify yeah. their location. I thought that was cool. Yep. But um, but so our first on our first meeting with Michael Burnham, uh, Giorgio asks uh, Michael what her estimate of when the storm is going to hit them is. And she says, one hour, 17 minutes and 22 seconds. And I'm like, please, come on. (laughs) To the Um, second, yeah. You know, that's ridiculous. Even if you're raised on Vulcan, you're a human and that's ridiculous. Um, the, I like the desert planet landscape. I thought, you know, the, the imaging was nice. I like the special effects in general and all this, but then during this scene, it's like dueling exposition with Captain Giorgio. I mean, Michael exposits, Captain Giorgio exposits, and it just bounces back and forth. And I'm like, it's dueling exposition. Well, what we get here is, is we we're, the, the the writers want to make sure we know that uh, Burnham is a human with a Vulcan like personality, um, that she's a, a a fast rising star in Starfleet about to rise to command. And like we're establishing all this stuff about Burnham because we're about to have all all this other stuff thrown at us as things mm-hmm. develop over the next two episodes. Um, in in. It's been clunky like this in previous Star Trek pilots. I mean, it's really Star Trek pilots have to establish a lot very quickly so that we can then get into the regular action and adventure. And and, but you're right. It it does feel clunky and a little boring to have them talking so much. And it keeps going like that in this episode, as I'm yeah. sure we'll cover it. I would mm-hmm. say this. I mean, this is certainly more enjoyable than Encounter at Farpoint. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I would think it's even more enjoyable than for me. It's more enjoyable probably than Caretaker. Yep. Um, maybe. But um, but it's not our it's not our best. And it is clunky. Right. It does yep. not surpass either where man where no man has gone before or emissary for me. Uh, so, yeah, I agree. Uh, so it's about Midland, middle of the pack. Uh, it does. One thing I want to point out is these first two episodes, they subvert our expectations because the show is called Star Trek Discovery and the discovery is nowhere to be seen in these first two episodes. Yeah. Um, yeah. and I mean, in fact, these first two episodes are essentially a long prologue for the series they, what they yeah. have, what they do is Fair they enough. set up Michael Burnham as the, the fallen Starfleet officer, the, the, really a sort of um, villainous character to start, uh, you know, a, mm-hmm. a mutineer uh, who started a war. Uh, and so that's kind of interesting um, that the choices they make, they certainly are different. We, this is not just another retread of next gen or the original series or anything, anything that's come before. So I'll give them that. Um, 
Yeah. And even though there was criticism at the time, like, where's the discovery? I, I don't have a problem with, okay, this is this is the prequel to the story you're about to tell us. That's right, fine. Right. I can. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we are told that it's uh, start date 1207.3, which is May 11th, 2256, a Sunday. Uh, mm-hmm. why the, again, the sort of, of Vulcan over precision. Uh, but it, I think yeah. it's one of the first time ever told an actual like an equivalent between the start date and the day. In year, yeah. like the day, the 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 date, uh, the actual. Yeah, date. we're not mm-hmm. told that that often. Yeah. Um, One thing, so we're this since we're at the beginning of the episode, after the initial desert planet opening, we have the opening credits. Right or after the Klingon sequence in the desert planet, we have the opening credits, which are very distinct from any credits we've seen on Star Trek before. Right. Um, and I think they really work for me, both you know visually right. and in terms of sound, and with the original theme fanfare right there at the end. Um, I, I, you know, these these if, if you're going to have credits, which these days you kind of don't need, um, but it, it, you certainly don't need ones this long. But if you're going to have well, them, these these work for me. Well, you, you need to have credits this long because there are more producers listed than there are actors. <laughs> it's like, uh, there's there's 20 people are listed, some role of producer, executive producer, assistant producer, assistant producer to the assistant producer to the assistant producer. I mean, well, some of it has yeah. to do with the uh, turnover uh, of uh, people running yeah, exactly. the show, uh, which is the, the whole nother uh, bit. We I think we actually talked about that in our overview uh, yeah. was the turnover. Um this this is also the first one hour opening we've had since the original series. All of the intervening series, except the animated, um, which had like a thirty minute opening, have had two hour openings. Right, and we right. we kind of talked before about how um, because it's two two prologue episodes. It it's yeah. you know it's covering it one sort kind of story. Of, it's kind of two hour, and, but yeah. And and when they released this, you know, this episode was broadcast on CBS television yep. on regular over the air television, and then you had to go to their all access to watch the second part, right? Right. Which we'll talk about next time we talk about Discovery. Yes, um, I, I did. I, I, I agree with you. I do like the opening. I'd like the music. Um, it's it's mm-hmm. be- certainly better than Enterprise. Um, <laughs> uh, although we had we had a dis- someone disagree with us on on Facebook about uh, they really liked the Enterprise theme music. They felt it was uh, the lyrics were hopeful filled and yeah. Um, I don't mind the thing. I don't mind the yeah. faith of the heart thing on Enterprise. It's you know it's I'm 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 not <laughs> adamantly opposed to it. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, I I like the idea like the idea that the original series established that a Star Trek series opening you know is you see the ship in space or in the case of um, Deep Space Nine, you see the space station not moving around, but where it is in space. Yep. And this sort of, you know, goes subverts that expectation, says it's a new time, new sensibilities. We have different artistic take and we're doing it differently. And I like that. I like that. It was yep. it, it was good. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get introduced. Oh, go ahead. Is, is well, it- I, I was going to say, once we get past the credits and we have the opening yep. uh, narration from Michael, we also get to see some new special effects with the warp drive special effects, what it, the ship is traveling at warp. And this is less successful for me. Yeah. I mean, it's mm-hmm. interesting to look at and I wouldn't mind it anywhere else, but it feels more like change for change's sake rather than a definite improvement. Right, right. It's Yeah. There's some, some of the effects... Um, especially the practical effects or the combinations of of visual and practical effects, say on the, of the ship and on the bridge. I like those changes. Um, uh, Mm -hmm. There's some 
cool technology, but some of the visual changes in space, the strictly visual changes. Yeah, it feels like, well, because they did that with the movie. They changed how uh, warp drive looks and then they did like the, and what the transporter effect looks like. Right, right. And yeah. yeah, it's just like change for change sake. I, I agree with you on that. Yeah. See, I, I, we, one thing I did like speaking of that, though, with the transporter effect where they made it clear that this is an older form of transporter technology. Yeah. And so it takes longer and it looks very different than what they show later on. Right. For a more more modern, quote unquote, transporter. That's true. Be. That's true. Mm-hmm. We we do have just sticking with the visual level for a minute. We do have across the board higher production values than anything we've seen on Star Trek television before. Yes, um, it just the special effects look better. The visual, you know, the color intensity, the crispness, um, just it, it's it. They really have taken that up a level, and also visually, they're giving us things like angles in space. That they yeah. have never given us before, not in these numbers, certainly, where you're getting these Dutch angles in space. You're looking at things uh, from a much more three-dimensional perspective. Well, right. And they, they're making space feel creepy. Yes. Um, yeah. The way it's all lit and everything. Well, just, just just the idea that the bridge of the Shenzo is on the bottom of the saucer, yeah. not the top. <laughs> so it shows Burnham standing upside down by their perspective. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Well, they they do things like that. They do a couple. Of, there's this one shot where the uh, Shenzo is facing down the giant uh, Klingon ship, uh, uh, the sarcophagus ship. ship. Yep. And the Shenzo is a, a, at an angle toward it, like it's t- like from the perspective of uh, the of the Klingon ship. The, right. the the Shenzo is is at an angle, it's, an odd angle. Yeah, yeah it's not like no, you always see like where the Klingons are facing down the Enterprise. Yeah. I was going to say, it's not like you always see the Klingons face in the Enterprise and they're always face to face. I mean, like right. they're nose to nose, you know. Well, I was going to say, it's still ridiculously close to the Klingon ship. I mean, you would never want to be, unless you're preparing to dock, you would yeah. never want to be that close to another ship well, in space. That's um, Well, that's because the Klingons uncloaked right next to them. Yeah, well, they should have immediately. Neither one should be that close to each right, other. Right, I, I get that. <laughs> um, it would be hard to target. Well, for, to the be Shenzo. fair, Saru did say you need to back off. So yeah, right, he kept trying to say we need to retreat. We need to retreat. We need to retreat. <laughs> one thing. Uh, one other thing they do with the the, sh- the shots in space is the uh, they do the Battlestar Galactica like handheld camera thing. Uh, m- mm-hmm. Not quite shaky to, cam. Yeah, not quite to the level of. A BSG, but but similar to that, we yeah, you have that shaky mm-hmm. cam, that handheld uh, feel to it, uh, which is interesting. Also, one thing I liked about this episode, we have one of these super intense, you know, rock fields in space, mm-hmm. and normally when you see them, like in in. Star Wars Empire Strikes Back, you know, when they're in the asteroid field and it's okay. Asteroid fields actually don't have this number of asteroids zipping around um, because Mm -hmm. they're unstable if they do. Our asteroid belt here in the solar system is way, way, way thin. That's why we can send space probes through it. Right. Um, And so this ridiculous number of asteroids that you see normally in science fiction is very scientifically unbelievable. But this is an accretion disk. Right. And Mm -hmm. so it's like, yeah, this is what you would have, or at least it's a lot more believable to say we've got all this rock junk that is in the process of congealing into planets gravitationally. And so you, you could have a much denser field. So just from a scientific point of view, that's a lot more believable than a dense asteroid field. But, 
but they do then blow it by saying, uh, by sending her in the suit through the field. They're 2,000 kilometers away from this object. It takes her seven minutes to get there. How fast is she so going? She <laughs> averaged over 10,000 miles per hour in this spacesuit. Well, wow. it has an inertial dampener on it, right? It's because got it was some kind of deflectors, two, too. <laughs> 2,000 kilometers in seven minutes is an average of 4,760 miles per second, which is about 10,000 miles per hour. 10,500, 10, I think, is closer. Well, okay. I'm not a, Klingon, yeah. or I'm not a Vulcan, so I'm not going to get down to the precision of decimal And why points. not send a shuttle? That's that's another question. Well, because it's too, it's too dense. It's, it's too dense uh, okay. is, is, is the reason. But I did like, in principle, now I thought the way they executed some of the spacesuit stuff was not as great, but I like the fact that they used a spacesuit. Oh, yeah. I liked the sequence. I liked it better than the ridiculous spacesuit use in Star Trek Into Darkness. This is this is a reasonable thing to do with a spacesuit. You go and look at a phenomenon that you can't get a shuttle to because of size. It, it, it um, did remind me of a Spock in the, the original yeah. motion picture. Yeah. yeah, but if you think about it, we almost never see spacesuits in Star Trek. That right. and this are the only two. Well, I mean, first, I guess they're spacesuits the in contact. first contact. Yeah. But we so seldom see it. So I liked seeing it. I liked the heads up uh, augmented reality display in yep. the spacesuit helmet. I like that. Um, I, 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 so I thought in general that was really good. I thought that aspects of it were not as good. Um, the whole she's got to be back here in exactly 19 minutes or her DNA is going to unspool. Yeah. It's like, that's yeah. not how radiation poisoning works. Right. Um, and, and uh, also. Well, and if she gets back in she, 18 she minutes can, and 50, they can save her. She's fine. But if it's 1901, yeah. she's toast. <laughs> yeah. It, it, that, that was, that's just not how it works. Yeah. Um, the, also it, when she wakes up in sick bay, I mean, she confirmed on camera that her suit was recording this. Right. And that's not if if they hadn't included that moment, then you could say, well, her suit was broken. They didn't get any data off of it. But if she confirms it on camera for the audience, that's a yeah. promise to the audience that the suit is getting this. Right. And and then why didn't they examine the data on the suit while she was in sick bay well, they, they said and it was, understand oh, the situation? Oh, it was damaged after the fact. Well, yeah, oh, it was fine. damaged when she ran into the Klingon. Yeah, okay, but then you don't include the moment promising the audience you're getting this. Right. The fact that they don't believe her, it's just it, it's like it's convenient it's too convenient. Like either the suit's recording it or it's not recording it. And uh, it, it, it just it's actually, yeah. To to be fair, I think actually the way they they put it is the the final few minutes were damaged. Hmm. Yeah. Know, so like right. it didn't rec it didn't actually save that that little snippet where she actually ran into the Klingon and fought him. And all the different sensors and all the yeah. I don't know. I just think yeah. I, I get. I mean, I I get why they do it for the dramatic effect. It's just that it bothers yeah. me on a on a practical level. Also, when I, mean, I don't mind the fact that the suit was damaged. I just think they didn't set it up right. Also, yeah. when when they. When she gets to the Klingon object and she's doing her initial survey of it, um, she's narrating and says, the construction and design are nothing short of astounding. And this is an ex <laughs> this is an example of what's been called informed attributes. Right. Where instead of showing you something, you're told about it. Right. 
and and that it's a cheap form of writing. And frankly, I think it's unnecessary. Just the visuals can sell this thing to the yeah. audience. I mean, it's, it's a stunning um, visuals that they put on it. It really is incredible. Well, it, yeah. So, well, the, 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 mm-hmm. there's an overall uh, uh, the problem that a lot of shows do, not just this one, which is. They they feel this need that they have to the actor has to just keep telling us about everything that they're doing and seeing. Mm-hmm. I'm now flipping on the switch. I'm looking at the monitor. I mean, it's like just do the yeah. thing. I can see you doing it. You don't need to tell me you're doing it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, one of the things that kind of bugged me was is I I still don't know what the beacon was doing here. Like why was it here? What was what was really about? I I just didn't feel like well, I they explained so- enough of it. I think the, I mean, I think the reason is they're in Federation space. The Klingons have come to Federation space. They've planted the beacon here to summon all of the Klingon ships so they can provoke a war with the Federation. Right. And so the Federation will perceive this as an incursion on their territory right. and that'll lead to the conflict. That's, and that's why they had the whole thing of the uh, the communication probe being shot. Well, I get that. Yeah. I, I mean, the, I mean, what? By, the- by the way, one one more note on the communicate on the beacon. Um, our presence has triggered some sort of motion response. Some sort. Some sort. <laughs> it's like you know, that's some sort of line I've heard before. Some sort and of. I love Voyager. Yeah. Motion motion response. Can't you just say it moved? We tripped a motion alarm <laughs> and it moved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing is, you know, that we we send out this beacon, and apparently Klingon ships can travel from. Uh, halfway across the quadrant in instantaneously. This is the oh. the the classic well, not, Star Trek well, problem of how fast can warp powered ships go? Actually, well, not, not just not just can those ships travel halfway across the quadrant in a blink of an eye, but apparently the light from this beacon can travel all the way across the quadrant in <laughs> yeah. a blink of an eye. Right. The, yeah. Right. I, I mean, I can, and so we have that as a problem. This beacon should be light speed limited from the way they've set it up. And so these ships shouldn't even be receiving well, the message for years and years. And then they all arrive within seconds of each other. Right. No matter how far away they were coming from. It's like 24 houses scattered over Klingon space really have ships just ready to go all at the same moment. I can headcanon these things. I can say that, yeah. okay, when they lit the beacon, they also started live streaming subspace youtube video of it (laughs) so that all of the houses were notified without the light speed limit and then maybe they all staged somewhere you know a light year away and then flew in it together as some kind of ceremony but none of that is set up for us and it violate if you don't set it up it violates credibility in fact sarek when when uh we get uh burnham talking to sarek Says the quadrant sees a new star in the sky. Yeah, How? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's light travels 186,000 miles per second. That's not going to reach you for about 50, 60, 70 years at best. If not more. If not yeah. more. Uh, yeah, that that's sort of like if you're going to be a science fiction show, let's let's stick to the science. Have it be a beacon that transmits a subspace message. You know, and maybe a symbolic light as well. Okay, sure. Let's have a symbolic light, but say it transmits a subspace message that calls them. Yeah. And not and not do this other stuff that just it's it's sloppy. And if there's one thing that mm-hmm. Star Trek fans are are, are about, we, we hate the sloppy writing uh, that 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 kind of does disservice to actual science because, you know, we we love science. That's I mean, as, as a lot of us do. Uh, 
science fiction fans. Uh, yeah. Okay, so that's our that's our complaints about that. We I'm sure we'll have more, more complaints. We really do like Star Trek, folks. We really do. But you know, this is this is uh, uh we yeah, we no, highlight I, the good like and the this, bad. I like this series overall, but this is a shaky start. Yes, um, we get introduced to the crew. Uh, we find out here that uh, one of him. <laughs> well, right. Well, because only one is. Well, actually, a couple of them will make it to the discovery. Um, but one speaking yeah, but role. Only one has a personality. <laughs> yes, and that's uh, Saru, the the science officer who is. Um, Oh, I, I can't. I get Kelpian. 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 I kept Crepusculin stuck in my head, but Kelpian, yes, uh, which is a new species um, that we learn are uh, they are a evolved as a prey species. Uh, yeah, prey species, and therefore extremely sensitive to impending danger. Um, and I find yeah, and, and bred and, to sense death. Yes, and he and, feels and, it coming now. <laughs> And and there's an interesting line when he explains that he says on your planet you have food chains, which would mean which we do of course you know you have an apex predator which preys on other things and that thing preys on other things and that thing preys on other things, and he's saying we don't have that on mine we're binary there are predator species and prey species and I'm a prey species so I don't get to prey on anything else and that puts me in a unique evolutionary position. We've been bred to sense the approach of death. Well, okay, your people are intelligent. Normally, right. prey is not bred for intelligence. Right. Um, yeah. And you need to, you don't need to, you don't need intelligence to sneak up on a blade of grass. <laughs> um, and it's the people who need the intelligence are the predators that have to sneak up on the prey. So yeah. evolutionarily speaking, whoever bred you should be smarter than you. Who right. is this and where are they? <laughs> yeah, what is the yeah. predator species like? Uh, right, exactly. Um, one of the things that kind of bugged me is Burnham and Giorgio's dismissive attitude towards Saru's species and his the, concerns yeah. is so racist. If what I know, what is with all the anti-Kelpian racism on this ship? There should be a complaint file. <laughs> well, there's anti-Klingon uh, racism. There's anti-Vulcan racism. Vulcans have anti-human racism. There's a whole lot of racism in the Federation, I noticed. I mean, it's yeah. really not, well, not, not great. Well, but, uh, By modern PC standards, certainly. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and it's funny because we, we talk about how there's – you know, uh, the, the reason why the original series crew works so well is, is the, the dialogue between them, you know, McCoy and Spock and Kirk. And there's a lots of ribbing that goes on back and forth from all three. Right. Yeah, they're having rap it, battles it's, without it's the rap. Generally, it's generally <laughs> friendly ribbing, more or less. On the bridge where it happened. Yeah. <laughs> Hamilton <laughs> reference. <laughs> uh, never, never seen it, never heard any of the music. Okay. So anyways, um, <laughs> but uh this isn't friendly ribbing. No. I mean, to the point where, where yeah. Burnham goes over and basically pushes Saru away from the console so she can punch up information that oh, he and, should be able to pull up. And then he shoves her back and has a subtle dig at her. They have this little pushing yeah. mash over the console. I kind of <laughs> exactly. like that. That was that was clever. But I mean, this doesn't seem like friendly ribbing like, again, yeah. you saw with other crews. And this gets into an area that I think is, again, part of the show's premier 
dynamic in that um, there's a lot they need to establish for us about Kelpians and what they're like and stuff. And and as a result, a lot of the dialogue feels forced. Yeah, um, it's it's not natural feeling dialogue, and it also suffers from a problem we've seen before on Star Trek in regard to like Commander Data when he's first introduced. Oh, we're we're told <laughs> he has a twenty like a twenty. He's been part of Starfleet for twenty five years. Um, but he's only at the beginning of his social development because they're going to show his social development over the course of next gen. And so it's like he's absorbed nothing from his previous 25 years of service in Starfleet. And we see something like that here. Any initial, you know, Kelpian cowardice things and dismissing of Kelpian views, that should have been taken care of before the series even began right. Right. just like data should have started learning how to use contractions before <laughs> next gen began here the three main characters on the shinzo should have established a respectful functional working relationship before this point well and it's it i mean it would be one thing if if uh, saru was an ensign you know, fresh out of academy, whatever. I you could assume yeah. that he's, he's not his second commander. officer. Yeah. yeah, he's lieutenant commander. I mean, he's he's fairly high ranking within Starfleet. You'd think yeah. he had a few years under his belt to take care of this kind of issue. Right. They're giving him the bridge when the two of them walk off of it. So right. he's yeah. he's he's clearly a respected, capable figure. He shouldn't be be constantly dissed this way. And he is so one note in this episode. Yeah. Uh, he gets, uh, and I like that the later on in this season, he develops more and a little more nuance to it and depth to his character, uh, which I appreciate, especially given how he gets catapulted into command situations uh, with the discovery. Mm -hmm. So I, I do appreciate that about, about him. But yeah, you're right. In this episode, he's basically one note. He's afraid. He wants to run, period. And, and that's... And, yeah, and he's the anti-warf. Yes. <laughs> right. Uh, speaking of the Klingons, I'll kind of come back to them for a no, minute. I, I, uh, I did want to say I really like his visual design. Um, yeah. For, for, he's the most – he's still a biped, but he's the most physically different alien that we've seen given his height and everything like that and the length right. of his limbs. Right. Even just the way his uh, – like his feet are more hoof-like. They're more um, o uh, ovine. In that sense, if, mm -hmm. uh, like that, uh, and and uh, so it's very interesting how that they've that he's not just head bumpy alien like we've seen so often. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, the the Klingons, speaking of head bumpy aliens, uh, the design for the Klingons and their ships and their their clothing seems vaguely Egyptian. I mean, it's not really. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of difference, but that that particular ship in, it definitely does. Yeah. It, they, right, they kind of dial it back later on, and this it kind of feels like that, that this may be some sort of uh, religious ship. I mean, given that oh, yeah. they're a warrior yeah, race, very much so. their religion revolves around violence and war. Well, and they, they mentioned that this this is an ancient ship. This isn't yeah. like you know top of the line Klingon. This is a yeah. ship that's been around for a long time. And of course, they develop that later in the series. Yeah. They talk and about more behind about it. And it's covered with coffins, some of which are thousands of years old. I found that interesting. That it's it's, it's kind of to talk about the the Klingon religion. We didn't. There isn't a whole lot of that in the previous series, and we get much more mm. of a sense of Klingons. They that you know, according to Klingon mythology, they've that um, 
Kalis, the first Klingons killed their gods. Yeah, Kalis then, killed the gods, and so they don't have oh, gods. No, 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 no. This Even before, before then, before oh. Kalis, and then Kalis united their houses. Okay, okay. So um, they so they don't have gods that they worship, but there's still a a sort of religion that that they that's sort of presented in these Klingons. Uh, Takuvma is a messiah figure, as I said. Um, they have specific religious rituals. They fight with the bodies of the dead. Adorning their ship's hull, I I, I liked that they, depth. They that, believe the dead have a black fleet, right? That they continue mm-hmm. to fight in in the afterlife. Yeah, Stovokor is there is the afterlife, and mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, uh, we we have heard in previous if, series, uh, Grethor is Klingon hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, Otherwise, you get on the barge of the dead, right? And, and so I I do like that that the Klingons have been a developed uh, species, and c- that's continued in this. Uh, series, I, I like that about it. Um, another race, the classic race that we are we are seen again is the Vulcans. Uh, Burnham mm-hmm. flashes back to her childhood to the this testing that they do with the Vulcan kids, which we have seen before. Uh, we saw mm-hmm. Spock doing it in Star Trek IV: A Voyage Home, um, and we get another bit of uh, speciesism again. We have Sarek, who intentionally. In the, as part of this testing, throws this emotionally uh, damaging <laughs> imagery at her yeah. of the moment that the Klingons uh, killed her parents uh, as part of the test, and then tells her that, well, you know, see, this is the problem. Your human heart is a problem, um, and that's that. And okay, was, we have was, different was spe- that What's that? Was was that imagery diegetic or non-diegetic? Because I thought that was in. I thought that was what her mind was conjuring. No, no, it was definitely part of the test. It was very clearly okay. part part yeah. of the of the of the testing, and, and it was uh, sort of Sarek making trying to see if she could stay unemotional. And what we keep seeing mm. is uh, different species judging other species by, by their own standards. Humans judging. Uh, Kelpians by human standards, Vulcans judging humans by Vulcan standards. And and it's just and, and to some extent, that's going to happen if we meet other species. Right. Um, but well, the, well, the but, Vulcans had learned that in 100 years, though, because we had the same complaint about Enterprise where they're the Vulcans were judging humans by Vulcan standards and vice versa. So they barely haven't learned yet. The, well, the pro- and Sp- well Spock, Spock will do it in the ne- in the original series ten years from now. Right. It's just a question of, despite our differences, can we establish functional working relationships? Yeah, right. one of the things that kind of gets me with this is Sarek should be above that, shouldn't he? I mean, given that you know he's kind of married to a human woman who very clearly does yeah, not still- subscribe to Vulcan standards of um, lack of emotion. Well, he's also known to be an experimenter, which they talk about later in this series. He has these interracial experiments like Michael and Spock going. Yeah, OK. All right. I mean, that's that's true. Um, it's it's I don't know. It's, it's something that kind of bugs me about this perfect future that Roddenberry proposed. No poverty, no lack, except there's always still this. There's all this racism, all this racism. But but as we've said before in previous episodes, there, you know, if if everything were perfect, it would be a very boring series. 
Uh, if there were no yeah. conflict, there would be nothing to to do except watch people sit can, around. Yeah, can, can you imagine? Can you imagine the the you know starting episode one, two, three, four, five? Nothing happened. Yes, we were flying along. We, we went about our day. We we monitored what we were supposed to monitor. The ship ran as expected. No transporter accidents. No no holodeck accidents. It was a good day. The end. <laughs> the end. Uh, the end of the episode. Uh, we get introduced to Voch the albino uh, Klingon, and uh, now that you've seen the whole, okay. Uh, spoiler alert, folks. <laughs> As we get most of the way through talking about this episode, uh, we're going to say about if you haven't watched the whole first season of uh, of Discovery, you might want to skip ahead to about five or ten minutes um, because we're going to spoil an important plot point for later on the season. Uh, uh, evidently having to do with Vok the albino Klingon, but uh, so that's your that's your uh, clue right now. Uh, <laughs> all right, if you're still around, Vok the albino, did it occur to you? Did did it did it play differently for you now, knowing now what you know from later on about who Vok will eventually be? Um, I not really for me. I just thought, oh, they're okay. There's that. There's Vok, and I know who he's going to end up being. Uh, yeah, same. same. I, I did recognize the voice this time. Yeah, mm -hmm. I had trouble. You know, the voice was yeah. clear to me this time, but I had trouble picturing the actor under all of that makeup. Like I really, I really yeah. tried to say, I'm trying to see that guy there, and I am not seeing him there. Uh, so I got to yeah. give them credit. It's really I, when, one thing. When, one thing when, I do. You, when it, when Vok has to give up everything, it includes all of that makeup. <laughs> right. yeah. One thing I do love, though, is the way they played it when the series was airing or airing, quote unquote, when yeah. it was being released, where they actually created a Twitter account of supposedly the actor who looks like this supposedly naturally. This is like his natural appearance. Right. right. And it, they had this whole Twitter account and it. Of course, it was I think it was like some low level lackey and, yeah. you know, CBS production right. somewhere. And, and, and they it. had they had an IMDb entry for him, too. Yeah. And his his name in Persian meant something like live long and prosper. Right. It was yeah. there was a very concerted effort to keep the surprise, which in these days of the Internet and Bra everything Bravo to them. The, they, I mean, they played it well. People yes. were, were convinced that this really was the actor and he was just hiding his face behind the mask or whatever. Yeah, it was. Pretty, pretty, pretty good uh, uh, surprise later on. So then we get to an explanation of what is the Vulcan hello, uh, you know, the, the title of the episode. And the Vulcan hello to the Klingons was we fire first to earn their respect and bring about peace. Um, it, and we keep doing that right. until they were until they respect us. Right. But this time firing first was the wrong move, wasn't it? You mean that? Was it? I, I, I so I think. And I think the show is ambiguous here because um, Captain Giorgio does not follow her advice and they wait until the and, and we don't even see them fire in this episode, but they right. wait until all these other ships have come. Yeah. And before the firing happens, and that's what provokes the war. I think the argument would be that if they had fired on schedule when Burnham wanted them to before these ships got here, then it wouldn't have been the same kind of provocation and it might have worked. At least that's debatable. Yeah. Well, um, and, and, and but, the, but the, sorry. But say that, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> uh, and the different the difference is though it wasn't that the Vulcans fired first; it was the Klingons destroyed the Vulcan ship 
first and the Klingons realize or the Vulcans right. realized if we were going to deal with the Klingons, we need to respond in kind until they they don't try to destroy us. Right. right. So so let's talk for a moment about just how irrational Michael Burnham comes off at this moment, because exactly. up to now she's been portrayed as pretty rational. Well, OK, Sarek tells her this worked for us. That doesn't mean it's going to work for you. Right. So right. she's been warned. And then when she storms up to Captain Giorgio, she says, Captain, you've got to fire on the Klingon ship. Out of the blue, with no supporting evidence for that proposition, exactly. a core of course, Giorgio is going to say no. I'm not going to. <laughs> yeah. um, the the uh, if you want to convince uh, your captain to do something as provocative as that, then you're going to need to lay the foundation for it first. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't do that. So she's just come out of a meeting with Sarek where she's been warned this. This this may not work for you. And she is so headstrong about it that she just demands it with no supporting context. Then she becomes publicly insubordinate to her captain. Mm. And then when she gets taken aside in private to be privately rebuked instead of dressed down in front of the crew. Right. Um, she uh, uh, she then physically assaults the captain and comes out in a with a transparent attempt <laughs> to subvert the captain's wishes that everybody can see is bogus. Right. It's like she is seriously off the rails at this point. Right. Yeah, I, I that's one thing I, I missed the first time we watched this. Um but I saw it here when we when I rewatched this the other day. Um her personality takes a major switch here and they played it well. I mean it actually you look at it where it's obvious that, at least as I saw it, that, that Burnham is still deeply, deeply, deeply affected by what the Klingons did to her family. Right. And this is coming out of that. Her whole reaction to this situation is coming out of that. It's not out of logic. It's not out of, you know, rational thought. It's out of hurt in I must make them pay for what they did to my family. Because she, and there's even a, there's even a moment where she starts to admit that to Captain Giorgio and says, maybe you're right. And then she physically assaults her. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, because, you know, I think we're meant to to understand that because she had to emotionally suppress uh, her you know, or to suppress her emotions surrounding this traumatic event because she was in a Vulcan foster home. Uh, that she never really dealt with it as you know growing right. up, and so uh, when we now encounter Klingons for the first time as an officer, she 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 loses it. She has a break exactly. Well, especially given that she just had a violent encounter with a with a Klingon on on the beacon, uh, so she has yeah. this 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 psychological break that causes her to do this. I mean, this like you said, it's, it was such a transparent lie that, oh, the captain changed her mind in the other room, but you can't go ask her uh, because, exactly. because, you know, she's, she told me that it's okay. Like if one of my kids ran out and said, uh, oh, mommy changed her mind and said that I can have the cookie. Now I'm like, yeah, I'm going to check with mommy and make sure on that one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't, don't mind the fact that she's passed out on the floor. You yeah. Know? She's resting. Uh, I mean, ironically, Burnham uses the cr criticism her criticism of Saru's questioning of the chain of command to bolster her own insubordination. I mean, it's just yeah, exactly. completely crazy. 
It, it is, I'm sorry, the chain of command doesn't prevent you from asking for confirmation on on orders of questionable legality. Exactly. In fact, that was mm. one thing that they drilled into our heads in uh, Air Force basic training is if you are given a legal order, not just are you not to uh, not to follow that order, you are to call them on it. Right. Mm-hmm. And immediate. Uh, I mean, there's no there's no question, right. especially if that person's superior is literally in the next room, like like literally. Uh, yeah. I'll just go check check with her. Okay, uh, she's right there, right? She's still there. Yeah. Okay, I'll just go check with her. No. <laughs> so, um, so then, so then we end with the the cliffhanger. Uh, we're gonna find a resolution of this uh, Vulcan hello uh, in the next episode, um, which we will be talking about soon. Uh, so, uh, any last thoughts about this episode here? Uh, we we want to bring up before we we wrap up. Uh, just just a minor thing. Um, when the beacon goes off and we have all that light shining in mm-hmm. through the ship's windows, my first thought was, why isn't this being filtered out? Because you would have filters to prevent this kind of thing mm-hmm. from happening. Um, I mean, there would be stuff in the glass that should darken. Which they said. And then they t- well, I yeah. know. Then they take care of that um, and say the filters are at 100 percent. OK, so let's close the shutters there should be shutters um you know you ought to be able to have there should be some kind of if you're going to have glass or force fields or whatever that is transparent aluminum transparent (laughs) aluminum whatever it is there should be opaque shutters that you can put over it and and so i found that uh, implausible yeah but it was visually interesting uh well yeah i always i kind of always go back to the original series where it was a view screen, and that's all it was. It was yeah, that, that was my other thought. Yeah. Turn off the view screen. Right. But, of course, it's not a view right. screen now, now in yeah. this one or in the Kelvin timeline, uh, but it's a window and which has a head, heads-up display sort of projected on it. And yep. I don't know yeah. that that's actually – I mean, we've talked about it before. The The best place for the bridge of the ship is somewhere, like, deep in the middle. <laughs> You know, right. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, and even then, you don't want something that's transparent to, say, laser light and things right. like that, because it's a vulnerability. Right. You sometimes you just want to turn off the TV and unplug. And read a book. <laughs> right. And by the way, that's one thing Battlestar Galactica, at least the reboot Battlestar Galactica did a good thing. The CIC was in the middle of the ship, the right. hardened yeah. part of the ship. It wasn't at the nose. Just like any uh, U.S. Navy or any other Navy ship mm-hmm. today, there's a bridge that they drive the ship from. Because you got to see the buoys and whatnot, but yep. when you're fighting the ship, the captain is in the CIC uh, yep. fighting the ship. The combat me. information center. Sorry, yes, yeah. the yep. combat information center. Uh, okay, that's uh, that's that's good. So, um, or the battle bridge. The, the battle bridge, right? That- <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, you know, one one thing one thing yeah. I will will say though, um, watching this, you know, of course, again, watched it when it first aired. And it was enough to get me to say, okay, I'll give this a second chance and watch, you know, the ep- the second episode. And it kept me going. But watching this the second time, I I actually like it better now than I did the first time hmm, I watched it. Right. Given that I, 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 don't, I don't think it's brilliant. I don't think it's brilliant TV. I don't think it's the best Star Trek ever written. But it definitely, I it definitely, I think it, I like it better the second time watching than I did the first. 
I, I have a little different reaction. I and now I may have I don't remember how much the flaws leapt out at me the first time I saw it, but I I, I had a definite. I remember my overall impression was positive, but um, this time the flaws made a, a stronger impression on me than I remember them doing the first time. So I actually may have liked it a little less this time. I think for me, given uh that I know the characters better from the, watching the whole season. I know where the story goes. I, I think I'm with Father mm-hmm. Corey in this. I, I I think when I first saw this, I was I was worried. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. there's there really things I don't like about this. Is this going to be good? But once I saw the whole season, and now looking back on this again, I'm like, okay, it turns out it turns out good, and in, in fact, better than this episode. So that in some ways makes this episode better, or at least not not a yeah. disappointment. Right, rising tide raises all ships. Type. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And hindsight is twenty twenty. So all right, so like that's our uh, overall assessment. Then I guess. Um, I don't know if I have like a little bit of feedback from folks, maybe one or two bits. Um, uh, on our overview of uh, the original series, um, Ray Me Leroy said, uh, great episode. I just finished a year and a half binge of all Star Trek movies and TV shows. That is quite a binge. That's epic. <laughs> that is epic. You mentioned a few of my favorite TOS episodes, The City on the Edge of Forever, Doomsday Machine, uh, and Space Seed, I was also blown away by A Taste of Armageddon. Uh, also, can't believe you didn't bring up Bread in Circuses. Uh, we can't bring them all up, but yes, that's another good one. Uh, that was the one w- that had uh, the uh, the Roman episode, the Space Romans. Oh, sure. Um, and then uh, Raby says, uh, so glad someone told me about your show. I'm so glad they told you about it, too. And that's exactly what we're talking about, folks. If you can recommend the show to someone and uh, and get them excited about it, too. Uh, let's see if there's anything else um, uh, on our overview of the next generation. Alfredo says, uh, I clearly remember the first time I saw it with my brother and sister. We were so excited after years of the original series. We saw it in our Fox affiliate in San Diego and we did not have a VCR. So we were happy to see the repeat the next day. I recall hating the shape of the enterprise. I'm with you, Alfredo, on that one. Finding Picard to be Ditto. too presumptuous and beardless Riker seeming weak. That's why the beard is the, sig- the sign of the better Star Trek next generation. <laughs> I did take a like liking to data right away. I also recall we were puzzled by Worf as there was no clear explanation of how there's a Klingon on the on a Starfleet bridge. Right. Mm. Um, he liked Will Wheaton because he was the same age as, as the character. Uh, and even when he became annoying, I kept a soft spot for him. Um, I, I agree that Troy and Yar were annoying, but I think Troy evolved. And by her appearance in Voyager, she was a solid character. I, I, I agree with you. I like I end up liking Troy a lot more than she did at the beginning. Uh, the first season was indeed dreadful for the most part. I don't know if I'd say dreadful, but it had its high points and low points. Uh, but the second was more, better. More, more low than high, <laughs> yeah, right. in my opinion. And the second season was better. And indeed, by three, it had found its rhythm. So. Thank I, you I, I don't I, I think it really took off in the third, but mm-hmm. second is I don't know how much better than it is than the first. Yeah, especially with the Dr. Pulaski factor. Yes. Yes, that's true. Um, so uh, then that's that's so that's our feedback. Uh, if it, if you want to give us some feedback on this episode on Star Trek Discovery's Vulcan Hello or any of our previous episodes, please do so. You can you can go to 
sqpn.com slash trek or the sqpn facebook page and leave us feedback on the episodes there or you can send us an email to trek at sqpn.com you can find links relevant to our discussion on our show notes on sqpn.com and we'll be back again uh, with a future episode of secrets of star trek we'll be discussing another great story from star trek we haven't decided what it is yet so uh, we'll have to leave you in suspense for what it is we'll be talking about next time but until then, Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. And thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. And since I began by wishing you both a Vulcan hello, I'll conclude with a Vulcan goodbye. Live long and prosper. <laughs> I'll give you a Klingon goodbye. Vuk- oh, <laughs> I forget Kapla. now. Kapla! That's what it is. I was trying to remember that. <laughs> uh, the spur of the moment, and I forgot it. And once again, I'm Dom Mattinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. This is Don Bettinelli again. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and that you'll help us keep producing the podcasts you love. Thank you for your generosity. To make your pledge and find out about the free thank you gifts we'd like to send you, visit sqpn.com give. That's sqpn.com give.